Hello, this is Rob Nesbitt with the Nesi on Brass podcast. In this edition of the podcast, Nigel Siemens talks to Corey Bands, ace soprano Steve Stewart. Steve almost missed out on playing a brass instrument after an early interview in school went horribly wrong. Thankfully, he did start on cornet and progressed quickly to soprano and trumpet and has played with some of the best brass bands and under the best conductors this country has ever seen. Steve lives with his partner Rachel in a lovely part of southwest Wales and has an extremely unusual and scary situation at home with lions at the bottom of his garden. In this intriguing interview, he shares very strong views on discipline and commitment and if you've ever despaired at your own band's success at contests, take note of Steve Stewart's frank and forthright views on how a rehearsal should be carried out. It is, in his opinion, pivotal to the huge success that Corey Band have achieved over the last 16 years. It's not rocket science, and with some adjustments to conductors and players' mentality towards those precious couple of rehearsal hours, so much more can be achieved. Let's get right into the interview with Nigel Seaman and Steve Stewart, which was recorded in the Corey Band room in late July 2016. Well, for this uh, edition, Nezzy on Brass podcast. I've come up to the Rhonda Valley to no less a place than the Corey Band Room, and I'm here to meet the soprano corner player of Corey Band, that's Steve Stewart. And uh, you arrived at the Band Room, Steve, because we've got a rehearsal um, in about an hour's time, I think. Yes, so we'll just absolutely. Get a quick, quick conversation before that. But you've, you haven't just come from down the road, you've, you've made quite a long journey to be here today. Where, where do you live? Uh, I live right out on the western tip of uh, of Wales uh, in a little place called uh, Big Ellie, which is attached to a town called Kilgetty, which is about six miles from Tenby, and that's as far as you can go before you you're in the sea, basically. So it's it it means that I make a hundred and fifty mile round trip every rehearsal. So it's basically about seventy five miles each way. So and why live that far away from the band room? Well, I, I I didn't move to Wales for anything to do with uh, music. I moved to Wales because uh, because uh, uh, my partner I'm with Rachel, uh, and uh, we got back in contact after many years. And uh, yeah, that was that. We kind of decided to to make a go of it, and we have a a lovely life down there. And, and Rachel's got two fantastic kids, Matilda and Boris, and uh, we have an interesting existence. <laughs> we we live in quite a kind of uh, strange place really it's kind of we, we, we live at the back of a zoo you do yes which zoo is that it's called folly farm oh yeah and it's uh i think it's like one of the the top attractions that people come to wales for mm. it's, it's uh we live at the back of the zoo so <laughs> every morning yesterday evening actually i was sat out in the garden with rachel about half past seven it was a lovely evening so we were sitting on a glass of wine and uh Hugo, the male lion from the, the zoo, he was uh, he started to roar. He he roars at night and when he's hungry, when he wants his dinner. I presume that's what it is. Yeah. But it's it was one of those nights where when the wind's coming down from the zoo, uh, it sounds like he's twenty five yards away. It's <laughs> it, it's, it's an, unless you've heard a lion going like that, it's it's the most awesome sound most people get annoyed with dogs barking but i mean you, you've got a lion roaring yes we have and the dogs they, they just go quiet i mean our dogs we've got two big dogs uh casper and cory they're uh one's our sort of casper and cory 
<laughs> yes, I named my, my doodle after the band. <laughs> and uh, they've normally got a lot to say, but when, it, when that lion starts, they, uh, they shut up. They think better of it, actually. Yeah, and I mean, and we've got chickens as well in our front garden. And uh, normally a lot of people around the area, they have problems with foxes. We don't. And I'm convinced it's because of the the lion scent. Mm. And it, it chases anything away. So, yeah. you know, it being the sort of king, the lion, you know. So, uh, no, we, we have a we have a lovely life. But I, I moved down here for Rachel and uh, various bands got in contact with me. For a while I played with Tredegar under Ian Porthouse and then Bob got in contact with me said why don't I come along for a blow oh, here. Bob Charles yeah yeah Bob Charles and uh, that's that I suppose yeah that was me stuck yes <laughs> well of course it, everybody will have heard the fact that you know you're not from South Wales at all because there's a, there's, there's a north of the border uh, accent so I mean where did life begin for you well I was born uh, in a place in a little place called Arm well I was born in Bathgate uh, which is in West Lothian, Scotland. So West Lothian's uh, an area halfway between Glasgow and Edinburgh. Uh, and I was born sort of in Bathgate. But I, for the first 10, 10, 11 years of my life, I lived in, in a little town called Armadale, which is a couple of miles, for, for anyone who knows their brass bands, is a couple of miles from Whitburn. Although I've never, ever played for a Whitburn band, which is quite... Fun, funny, really. Isn't so, when, when did you first start playing brass? Well, I was uh, in primary school uh, when I was about, well, when I was eight years old. We were all taken into uh, the sort of the hall in the primary school I was in, and uh, they did a sort of ear test with us. And it was the, the brass teacher, Mr. Spowart. I don't even know his first name, I just knew him as Mr. Spowart. <laughs> a left handed cornet player, Salvation Army. Uh, he did a little test where he got each one of us to come up and he'd play a note and then he'd play another note and he asked you whether the note was higher, the second note was higher or lower. And I got it wrong. And I don't know what happened. My mum says that it was I was so upset that he, you know, he said afterwards that I, I looked absolutely crestfallen when I was walking away. He said, come back and try again. So this none of this would have ever, ever have happened <laughs> if if he'd have just gone on his first little test. So he, he gave me another one. I, I got it right. And uh, I was given a, a cornet. And that was that where he started. So I started on the cornet. Right. And that was that was me. So within six to eight months, I was taken down to Armadale Borough Band, who were either second or third section. Not entirely sure. And that's how I started playing. Mm. Uh, in brass band, so I, I was taken into it very quickly in a senior band. Mm. I mean, really quickly, uh, and I was thrown onto third corner and told to get on with it. <laughs> Which is, you know, I mean, uh, there was stuff. It kind of frightened me. I remember my first rehearsal. We did the old arrangement of Le Preludes, and I remember I had the third corner part, and the 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 old guy who was sat beside me. I I, I was just puzzled, and eventually I. I I got up the courage and I was eight years old and I said to him, how am I supposed to play, they were split parts, mm. an octave apart, I can't play both notes at the same time, <laughs> <laughs> how do I do that? And I, I think I got a clip around the ear for that one, so that was, uh, but uh, we, um, my father uh, worked uh, in a, a local quarry, run about Armadale, it, it was all mining and steelworks. Very, very sort of industrial. 
and quarries. Uh, and my dad decided to have a change from that and he joined the prison service. So he did all his training and uh, uh, for the prison service when he when he sort of became uh, sort of a what's the word? Warden? No, when he gone through prison officer college. <laughs> Training. Yes, but once he trained and he got posted and he got posted through to uh, a really small low security prison beside Glasgow called Low Moss, which was uh, in a place called Lenzie, which is attached to Kirk and Tillich. And so I moved through our family, my sister, my mum, my dad, we all moved through to Kirk and Tillich, which was about 20, 20 odd miles away from where I was brought up. And you joined Kirk and Tillich? Absolutely. The, the, uh, the secretary of Armadale Borough Band sent a note through to the secretary of Kirk and Tillich. Uh, at, at the time, it was called the Kirk and Tillich Silver Band. And yeah, I was straight in again on the third corner. And that I was uh, 11 years old. So that's. So how many years did you say in Kirk and Tillich? Did you work your way up the ranks through second corner? Yes. The front yeah, well, absolutely. Well, I, I um, initially, uh, I mean, we're talking back. I remember the first year I did the area championship with Kirk and Tillich, it, it was uh, Beatrice and Benedict. So that's gone back to 1980? Mm. 80? So that was that. Uh, and at the time, the band was struggling really to, to keep its championship status. Uh, but there was some very forward-thinking people within the organisation there, uh, notably... Uh, Peter Fraser, mm -hmm. who a lot of people know from Brass Bands, he's a very well-known man for his organisational skills and 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 Saba, Brass Band Association in Scotland. His brother Robert taught me cornet when I moved through there. Uh, Robert Fraser, so he was very influential, uh, and Bully Tennant, who was at the time played Euphonium when I first joined, uh, but subsequently. Once he retired from playing, he set up Kirk and Tiller Kelvin Brass, which is now a championship section band. It was supposed to, it was a junior band when mm. he set it up. So actually now Kirk and Tiller have two championship section bands, which is I don't know anybody else who has that at all. Uh, which is quite remarkable. Is, uh, is there is a rivalry? rivalry <coughs> yes, there is very much. Yeah. You know, I don't. They, they they share the same band hall and oh. they, they sh share the same <laughs> library, but I think that's where it ends. Well. Uh, that is unique. No, I think what well, there are, they they do help each other out, and uh, it's it is a healthy rivalry. It's not anything that's there's no nastiness. But anyway, going back, uh, that was me. I, I worked my way up the ranks. By the time I was fourteen, I was on rep corner, and then I moved forward to bumper up for a little while, uh, and then. They didn't have anyone to play soprano, so I said, I'm, I'll do it. So that was that. And it was, uh, I was 15. So I was champion, I was uh, soprano in a championship session band at 15. Uh, I'd never... But you actually studied trumpet, didn't you, I think? I was, uh, uh, from 14, I, I went to the, the junior department at the Royal Scottish every Saturday morning. So I'd started trumpet. The soprano, that came a year later. And the trumpet, obviously, you know, I was I was just 
was in the county wind band and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So, but I mainly played cornet, really. The band was on twice a week and we had mm -hmm. more than that when we had contests. So it was a, a proper championship section band. And at, at the point where I joined, where I um, went on to soprano, the band was then being conducted by Walter Hargreaves. He was a massive influence on me and a, an amazing man. Force of energy, it was just, even as an old, he was an old man by that point, he was just a ball of energy and uh, he could knock you down with just a glance. And he, he was a, he was only, he was barely five foot. He was one of the scariest people I've ever met. But he was also one of the, the most sort of influential in, in the sense that he, he could make, he was one of these rarities that he was someone who could make you do more than you ever knew you could do. Mm. And that there are, as you know yourself, Nigel, as a player, people who, who can do that are very few and far between. And I've been very fortunate that I've, I've had a few people like that in my life, but he was the first one that I came up against. And, uh, and subsequently, in 1984 and 85, we won uh, two Scottish championships, two years on the trot with, uh, with Walter, amongst other things, other contests that we won with him. Uh, so yeah, that was me. I was up and running. But then uh, you did... Away, away from yourself because I, I know they studied trumpet down in London. Didn't they? Well, before then, I auditioned for a, a music school. So it was a second, it's called Douglas Academy. It was in Bearsden in Glasgow. I did the audition for that. I was accepted for that. So I did my fifth and sixth year. My last two years of secondary school, I did there. So I, I was, I'd come home at weekends. But during the week, I stayed in the halls of residence in Bearsden. And we just did, it's like Chet's. Manchester mm. uh, or St Mary's in Edinburgh. It's very, very intensive. And when I went there, the cornet took a backseat. It was time to sort of take the trumpet seriously. Mm -hmm. And I did that. So, and actually, in my, my sixth year, my last year when I was 18, I got to the brass final in Young Musician of the Year. When Young Musician was, was a massive thing, it was on BBC Two, it had like 11 million viewers. You must have seen that, wasn't it? You would have done, yeah. Oh, and, and actually, there was five of us. The horn player, Julian, he plays with the, the Halle now. Reese Owen was the other trumpet mm -hmm. player. He's principal trumpet with Liverpool Phil. And who else was in there? There was a, a tuba player who I haven't seen for years. He went to the Royal College, I think. And Tony Neal, who actually went on and won the brass final. Uh, he works over in, uh, in Ireland now. He's in charge of a... A lot of stuff over there, sort of education-wise. So it was a good batch. It was like a brass quintet. We, we, we there was they were good players. Uh, yeah, and we got like a, I think it was like eleven million people watched. I mean, that was back before they they shoved it onto. Is there a video of that? There is somewhere I got a really bad haircut on it. You know, <laughs> and I, and and actually, my, you don't have a white beard in that. Though. There's no white beard, no, and no <laughs> earring. Uh, but. I, my mum bought me crushed velvet DJ, <laughs> and yeah, if you ever see it, it's just oh, I I, I look like some a seventies nightmare on it. Um, in the mid eighties, that was a great experience. And by that point, I I had auditioned for you know all the music colleges, and got accepted for I think all of them. No, yeah, I think I was accepted for all of them, uh, but chose. The Royal Academy. For what reason? 
I don't know. It's always been something with me. I, I just love places that have a sense of history. You know, I love playing Macquarie because it has such a sense of history. Just things like that. And it, it, you walked in there and it's all marble and you look up on the boards and you see names like Elgar and, you know, and then you go into the Duke's Hall and the Henry Wood busts up there, the one they use at the, the proms. So it gets mm. taken away every, every summer and shoved on a plinth at the, at the at the Albert Hall. It just had a sense of history. And actually, t I'll tell you the truth. The day I auditioned, I was the last person on before lunch. And the, the two gentlemen who auditioned me, who are both utter legends in my book, uh, Harold Nash, the great Welsh trombonist, 40-odd years principal trombone of the Royal Opera House, sadly no longer with us, mm -hmm. and Ray Allen, the great tr London trumpet player. The two of them auditioned me. And we finished the audition, and they said, that's it, that's it, we're finished for lunch. And, and Ray turned to me and said, come on down the stairs and we'll buy you sausage, beans and chips. So they bought me lunch. And I thought, yeah, I like that. One of the trumpet professors here has just bought me sausage, beans and chips. So I think that, that's... that's uh, You're and, in there, you're in. Well, it was, you know, and we, and we sat and chatted about it, and they, they, they were very keen for me to go there. And they were working on bringing in new professors when they said that. So I went along with it and I arrived at the academy uh, in 1986 after the summer break. And I had my own little pigeonhole and I looked in there and it's, it, there was a note in there saying your trumpet teacher will be James Watson. And you could have knocked me over. I didn't expect that. Uh, but yeah, I had. I know he's had a huge influence on your job from having, having chatted to you uh, about Jim before. Yeah, I mean, Jim was... You know, we talked about Walter Hargreaves has been a real force of nature and, and just someone who can make you believe so much in yourself that you you could just do stuff that you never you never thought you could do. Jim was very much in that category. You know, he was a a huge man. I mean, he was a daunting prospect when he when he was sort of stood there looking at you you looked like a I always thought Jim looked a bit like a mafia hitman he had that sort of lip and you just sort of looked at you like what are you doing and he was six foot seven six foot eight and uh, he was yeah just a giant a giant personality and, a, and physically a giant man uh, but we we just went about my playing he went about teaching me in a way where you know we, we really concentrated on the musical aspect more than the technical and then from the start he said to me you know I'm, I'm not here to teach you technique you should know that already I'm here to teach you how to be a proper musician and he I suppose he spent four years trying his hardest to do that with me and it, so it was very different we used to think in colours you try and take away the technical part of it and try and you know so you must have been you obviously must have been taught really well at the beginning because I yes. suppose a music college for many years himself. Remedial work is almost not the norm when somebody first comes. You know, maybe they've been not taught badly, but they've, they've it's been overlooked maybe some aspect. And you've always got to do a little bit of remedial, but it sounds like you went there and hey, you're already Well, well I mean, I think that yeah, in a lot of respects, and that was down to me, and, and also down to a couple of people uh, around me when I was in secondary school, because I went to this music school. Uh, I mean, when I was 14 years old, I remember it was a very hot summer. I had this Arben book and I'd had it for a year or so. And, and I looked at the, you know, I'd been told, you've got to learn these studies. 
and I was like, I was just I'd puzzle away and try them, and I, I would fail miserably at them. I just wasn't getting anywhere. And then this summer, I just looked at this book and thought, right, I'm going to go for this. It's a funny thing. People talk about it. It, it just clicked. Just by that was it. Something switched on in my head. You know, during that summer holiday, I learned all fourteen. It just went. I, I was just, I was suddenly able to to find a way around the problems. So I just learned them. When I went to the music school, I was given a lot of time to, to practice as well during the day. So I would have free periods. If there was a free period, I would be over in the music block in a, in a room practicing. Now, I was very lucky that uh, the guy who taught trumpet in the normal school there, not in the music school. In the music school, I had Eric Dunlee, who was second trumpet in BBC Scottish Symphony. So I had Eric would come in once a week. But on site every day, uh, Ian Muirhead, who now is in charge of Wallace Instruments, Wallace Brass Instruments and Mutes, he makes Mutes, he was there every day. So he was a big help to me and, and an influence as well because he, you know, he was a professional trumpet player and he's principal trumpet of Scottish opera. So if I was playing something wrong or, or he didn't like it, he just used to come in and give me pelters mm. and say, you know, you don't do it like this, you do it. So I mean, I was having a trumpet lesson just about every day. You know, he was he was having a go. And then we'd do, we'd play orchestral excerpts. And he was very kind to me, Ian. You know, he, he had a lot of time. And uh, I've got a lot to thank him for, which I've never really talked to him about. But uh, actually, the mouthpiece I still use on my B-flat trumpet, which is a, an old Courtois mouthpiece from the 50s or 60s. And it's got, at the bot on the bottom part of it, it's got BG, which he told me was... Uh, the initials of Vincent Geno, who's a great trumpet player from France. It was his mouthpiece. It was one of well, he had loads of mouthpieces, but it was he left it lying on a piano in one of the practice rooms in school, and I picked it up. And a couple of days later, I said to him, "I've got this mouthpiece." He said, "Keep, keep it, keep it. It seems to work, and I still use it now." Do you play trumpet much these days? Then, funnily enough, I do. When, when the test piece, like for an opener or a nationals or European, if it's really high, it's not really possible to sit and practice, you know, something screaming upstairs the whole time. It's It makes common, it makes sense to me to just play it on a B-flat trumpet, get used to the sound of it in my head, feel, feel how I can phrase it, and then just swap it onto soprano. So I do use, and I've used flugel for that as well. <laughs> uh so I do use uh, my trumpet. I use my trumpet when I teach. So teaching is a big part of your, of your life at the moment? Then? Well, I don't have as many as I'd like to have, uh, but we live in quite a rural place, but it's getting better. Uh, I don't work for the music authority. I just work privately for myself. And obviously I, I do web teaching as well. So I teach online. Oh, really? Yeah. So I teach people from in various places. Like I, I had one this afternoon. I just gave a lesson before I came out to someone... In Germany, who's a soprano cornet player, Georg, who's a really lovely guy, and he's coming on leaps and bounds. And we're, we, we, I think we spent an hour doing uh, Capriccio, Philip Spark oh, Capriccio. I've, I've just recorded that, and you know, I don't know if you heard it, but it was, it, it's, it's not an easy piece of music to play. Yeah. He's really playing, he can play it, you know. So, do you find it easy? Was it easy to, to, to get into this web teaching? Well, you, you, it's quite unusual, isn't it, to give a lesson? Well, it, it depends how you go about it, I suppose. I mean, you need a decent microphone. We were sitting with a microphone here between us, and I used something not as good as that, but a pretty, it's a pretty decent microphone. Uh, and you need 
a decent computer. I mean, I, I've got an iMac for that purpose with a decent big screen. You know, it's not difficult to do. I mean, I wouldn't, I don't think I would do it. You could do it off a laptop, never do it off a tablet. That's just, you know, but if, but you would be surprised. I mean, I use FaceTime and for Georg, I use Skype. Uh, and both are pretty, they're pretty much the same. You know, as long as you have a decent internet connection, I can see everything that I need to see that I would, I'd see if I was in the room with the guy. You know, I get, I get them to move back a bit so I can see everything that's happening. They, as long as the sound's fine from his end as well, and I can hear everything he's doing, it, it's no different than sitting in the same room as someone. I mean, there are a lot of people who are doing it now, but I mean, I offer it. I should push myself more on it, but uh, I don't. There's nobody else offers soprano cornet lessons. In fact, there's nobody teaches soprano cornet. Just <laughs> well, they do say the soprano cornet players are actually born, not made at it. You've got to, you've got to have a. Well, is it true that you have to have a certain, certain personality to be able to tackle this? It, there's no hiding place on soft, is there? You know. Well, you, so, mean, are you when you're trying to ask me, is am I a nutter? <laughs> are you a soprano nutter? Go on, then, yes. Well, I'm not. No, I, and and I think that. I, it makes me smile slightly when people start saying that because it couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, I could go on to you for hours about soprano cornet. I mean, it's such a unique instrument. It's not like a B-flat cornet. It's nothing like a B-flat cornet. It's not really like a B-flat trumpet. And it's not really like an E-flat trumpet. And it certainly isn't like a piccolo trumpet. It's like something unique on its own, with its own difficulties. But as far as what you need, you need to be mentally strong. There's no doubt about that. At the kind of level I do it at, you have to be very mentally strong. You can't really have doubts. Anybody who's ever seen you playing in, in Gory can immediately, even before you start playing, can, can sense your commitment and can sense your, your, your sort of focus when you're playing. And, and that does manifest itself. We've talked about this before. You're quite demonstrative, aren't you? You enjoy playing and uh, when you play something really well and you make big gestures, which some people, they find amusing, but I have told people, they've said, with that put on, it's not because watching band practices here in, in, in Corey Bandrup, it's exactly the same, you just play the same all the time, don't you? Yeah, no, I've never put anything like that on in my life. And uh, yeah, But that's the way you play, so for anybody who's thinking that, it's not true, is it? I mean, I played the trumpet like that, and I've, yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I, I twitch a bit. Uh, you actually stood up, <laughs> which is the test, the, the contest you actually stood up at the end. But that, well, that, that was a bit unfortunate. I mean, I have this thing where when I really need to hit the turbochargers, I, I raise my backside off the seat and hook my legs around the, the, the uh, both sides of, a, of the chair and I just push my backside off the seat so that I can really push on my diaphragm. Mm -hmm. And I did that last year at the Albert Hall on Spirity at the, at the National Brass Band Championships and on, and it was on the last note and I thought you know this has gone pretty well so I'm going to really nail this last note you know in the process of I didn't hook my legs around the chair I put my legs on the outside of the chair and then raised my backside off the seat and uh, fell forward <laughs> so I ended up on my feet in front of I don't know, five and a half thousand people they're screaming at me. I'm screaming at them, and and yeah, it was it got a bit. It was quite an emotional experience. Yeah, they 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 went a bit mad, but we 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 played well. And the other thing is the utter joy you get. With, I mean, a band like Corey when when they in the, on the contest is I can't. It's very difficult to explain to you. They're just a very special group of people. 
there's no weakness when we hit our A game. There's just no weakness. Mm. And I think that it's just a band of incredibly stubborn people who will not, you know, the standard will not go, go below. And, and it, I find fascinating that the standard never drops beyond 100%. You know, many bands, I'm sure, listening will, they'll have that push for the contest and the band plays quite well. And then on next rehearsal, Tuesday, we sort of dropped a section in, in sort of in attitude and commitment. I mean, Corey's just at like 100% and then 110 on, on, on the contest. Well, it does, it does. The I focus in the rehearsal is, is actually palpable, isn't it? You know. I think, I mean, a lot of that is down to Bob. To Bob Childs, I mean, he instilled, you know, when he when he came back down to Wales in the in the early two thousands, you know, he really instilled a discipline within this band, mm. and it's never really, you know, Phil's Phil took over from Bob, and you know he's in a very fortunate position then because he he had a very disciplined, tight knit group in front of him, and you know, then I suppose then as a conductor, you were able to just express yourself. Mm, mm. And he's done so magnificently, obviously. Uh, but yeah, it, it's, I don't know. I mean, I get asked about Corey all the time. It's very hard to explain. You've just got to sit in it and then you know. Mm. I mean, I've had various friends who've sat in and they're like, oh goodness. I think the thing is that people take the parts home and they practice them mm. and, and they're ready. You know, so when we, I mean, I'll give you an example. The Open and the Nationals coming up. So the Open's the first one. Uh, from this Friday, we have a break for three weeks. The first rehearsal back, people will have practiced their parts. They, they won't be treating it like it's a holiday. They'll still practice mm -hmm. throughout the holiday. Yeah. And it's a commitment. So that's a commitment. And it's, you know, I think there's a fear factor as well. Because if you, you know, if you start not pulling your weight, you're going to get launched out. Yeah. Some people might say that's cruel. I don't think that's cruel. I just think that's life. It'll yeah. come to come to all of us at some point. It'll, it'll happen to me. Well, the, the, the great thing about banding, really, is that anybody can find their own particular niche, can't they? Now, in this band, you've really got to give 110% all the time. I mean, all the time. Through every rehearsal, every concert, every contest. And then you can you can pick and choose, really, all the way down to, to, the, to the real sort of social bands who... You know, yeah. That commitment doesn't matter. I mean, that's the other thing. We're not a very social band. Well, well, not really. Well, until you're on concerts uh, or contests, you know, when you're staying in a hotel. Yeah, well, yeah, and and that's and that's great. But mm. but actually, when we're getting down to it, I mean, rehearsal is everything, isn't it? And proper rehearsal is everything. I won't name names of bands, but I've been in various bands before where. You could say that within a two-hour rehearsal, and they have a break, you know, a two-hour rehearsal and they have a break. Why do you have a break? You don't need a break. It's two hours. And then the banter, you know, which I can't stick. I can't stick any of that. You should just be quiet and you use your pencil, you mark stuff down, you play. And, you know, there's, I've been at various rehearsals with other bands where you could say that every rehearsal, at least half an hour is wasted. At least. Now, if you take a, a run-up to a contest, for sake of argument, 10 rehearsals. Now, work that out for yourself. So, that happens every rehearsal. Half an hour's wasted. Times 10, that's nearly three rehearsals. Wasted. So, it's common sense, isn't it? That you, you don't do that. So, what I do is, 
on a Monday and a Thursday, I get in my car, I put the radio on, I travel to band, I get here, I take my instrument out, I warm up. I'm sat ready to play at quarter past seven, 15 minutes before the rehearsal starts, just like everybody else. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you're classed as being late at Corey if you turn up at 20 past seven. So mm -hmm. if you're 10 minutes early, you're still late. Well, I, I'm on rehearsal start at 20 past seven, everybody's here, yep. everybody's warmed up. Yep. I said, well, let's get on with it. Yes, absolutely. So we get an extra 10 minutes. Yeah. So then when it starts, we just go about it and... Uh, you know, I mean, I, I chanter during rehearsals, but I don't banter. I don't try and come out with some funny that, you know, thinking I'm some sort of brilliant comedian, because I'm really not. And I, you know, Stephanie puts up with me. I sit there, blah, 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 mumbling her ear well, Stephanie, the rapiano. Yes, time. yes, yes. She's, she puts up with me, you know, she puts up with a lot. <laughs> uh, and but we, we get on with it. We... So everyone's got a pencil. You mark everything, everything in. This, you know, the whole thing about oh, I'll remember it. No, you won't. Make your part mark mug proof. Even if you don't think it's relevant, it may well become relevant. So mark it in anyway. Mm. You can rub it out near the contest when you've got everything set in stone, and that's it. And so we rehearse. No break. No talking. Half past nine. Boom. Finished. On that's the dot. Yes. Always on the dot. Mm. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, and and that's what we do. That might seem quite boring to a lot of people but that's the secret of it it's just discipline it's not it's not a difficult thing really is it mm. any band could do it mm. I mean, if you're a championship section band if you buy into it as a group the whole all the players and the conductor you can get so much more done just by doing that and it's a very simple thing isn't it mm. there's plenty of time to talk before it if you get there early you can have a chat with people and there's plenty of time to talk afterwards. Or you can go for a pint, maybe, I don't know. I mean, I have to drive home, so I don't do that. Subsequently, uh, you know, you sit in a lot of our rehearsals. We get masses done. I think we get more done. I mean, I, I presume Black Dyke's the same as us. It's amazing that it, it could be like two months away from the contest. And yeah. yet Phil will insist that everything's really spot on. Yeah. You know, over and over, no, it's all right, do it again. Yeah. And... and Maintaining that focus, which I think, you know, I think that plus what you talk about breaks because I used to find the same. Let's say a typical brass band these days, you could start about oh, 22 to 8, quarter to 8 if you're lucky. Mm -hmm. You get stranglers coming in about 8 o'clock. So, around about 10 past quarter past 10, you've got a fairly warmed up band and you can yep. start doing a bit of work. 20 to 9, the ladies are opening the hatch saying the tea's ready. So, you've done about less than half an hour's rehearsal. Yeah. Proper rehearsal. Yeah. And then we have a break and then we discuss what time the coach is leaving and where they pick the people up. <laughs> And uh, etc. etc. And, and then, right about nine o'clock, we start again, and you've got to re you know, build that up again another five, ten minutes. And like you said, this is where you lose an hour or at least half an hour rehearsal. It, it's just, it's all stuff that's just unnecessary and unimportant. It's a bit like a committee. And do we have a committee at Corey? I don't think we have a committee. We just have some people who say, right, just do that. And I'm like, okay, I'll do that. That's it. I don't want to be bothered with that. I don't want to be bothered with it with with all the nonsense. I just want to sit and play, and then when I finish playing, I want to go home and say, "See, yeah. Rachel, you know, I don't, and I don't want to think about it." And when I get in, she'll say, "Our conversation goes something like, how was it? Yeah, it was all right, right.'" And then we talk about something else. Yeah. <laughs> but you, you said that you know you come to band practice fully prepared because the band gets through an, an immense amount of music, isn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah, it, it's it, it gets scary at times. Yeah. I mean, it, it can get too much. The cards look like Bibles, really. I mean, they're thicker than anything. Aren't they? We generally have a uh, run about the time of brass and concert. We or just before then. So after the nationals, we we sit down, and new music comes out. So that's going to be. So we have a brass and concert program that's that we do each year, and the basis for that is around the brass and concert is is the program for the next year. So our finisher. Which this year was the the Berlioz Brigands Orgy. Brigands Orgy. So we've been using that all year as a sort of finishing a finisher and the under the boardwalk that Helen did. Uh, so she does that and, and crowds love that kind of thing. And we'd be Aristotle's air. So all the stuff we did with that beautiful uh, thing that Chris did, Chris Bond. Mm. So we do that, but it's the other stuff, isn't it? It's I mean we do a lot of recordings. And then again, the focus there, because you can get a, a really difficult CD done in, in, in two, three hour sessions. I don't know how they do it, actually. It's, it's new CD weekends are such a buzz because mm. it's the standard just goes up. Everyone knows that we've got to it. And Phil allows such small amounts of time for each piece. One of these days we're going to get caught out with it because we're going to hit some piece and we're just not going to be able to get it done. You know, But it's not happened yet. Um, but we take on, I mean, there's been various things we've recorded that have really been seat of the pants. Corey then have a really big repertoire. They travel a lot as well. Like this year, the band came to Sweden, to, to France on two occasions, and America, of course, early on in the year. Yes, absolutely. So you're banding, not just with Corey, but with other bands, just taking it all around the world then? Well, I mean, I've been very fortunate that, you know, I've, I've gone various places and, and done various things. And I suppose being a soprano player, there aren't that many around of the kind of standard. You know, I don't, I've never understood this. I'd love to, to start just teaching kids to start on soprano. Because I don't, I think psych, it's just a psychological thing. People get this, they get worked up about. It's a cornet that's pitched in E flat. You know, it's yeah. not it's not going to bite you. And uh, but uh, no, I I've uh, I've won the Australian Championships with Brisbane Excelsior, and I won the New Zealand Championships with Brisbane Excelsior. They were the first mm. Australian band to go to New Zealand and win it in eighty odd years. It was so it was quite a, a historic achievement. Uh, and I've done various things, run about various places. I mean, I I even won the Sidis, which is the Norwegian Inter the main entertainment contest in mm. Norway, which is a big deal. And one that was Stavanger. There are lovely people there. Do you get these invitations from other bands to go across and... Well, I just get phoned up and it's like, do you, you know, do you fancy coming and do... Well, yeah, mate, that would be okay, wouldn't it? You know, I mean, if someone asks you to go and spend a couple of weeks in in, uh, in Brisbane, you're, you know, you're not going to say no, are you? No. <laughs> it's quite nice. Yeah. And, and of course, I love Norway, and uh, it was a pleasure with those guys, with Alan Withington, conducting. And, yeah, very, very fine band. Very fine band. Been very fortunate that, in that respect, but, you know, it's never, it's not anything I do the whole time. Because this band is so damn busy. And, of course, it has to come first. So it's only if I've got some free time. Uh, if it's anywhere near a contest, no chance. Mm. I'm, not, I'm not doing it. And I mean, I've got the added pressure, I suppose, this year that I'm I've started recording a, a solo album, and uh, so we're we're a bit into that. The stuff I'm having to practice, aside from the Corey stuff, is. Yeah. I think the way you're doing that is sort of uh, for each CD release that the band is putting together. Yeah. During that weekend that you're re recording, yeah, you just set aside just what half an hour or so to just do one of your tracks. 
we've done two sessions so far since May, since the European, uh, and I did two pieces in the first session we did, and the second session I did one piece, but the, the second piece was nearly 12 minutes long, and the, the two other pieces were 10 minutes between them. So I've got three tracks down, but they're three tough ones. I mean, I haven't, I'm, I'm not taking an easy route with this CD. It's it's, it's going to be quite extreme, uh, to the point where I've got a 20-minute concerto written for four-valve soprano, which has got a range from a pedal C up to a super E. So it's a bit extreme. That's the, that's my summer holidays ruined, uh, gentlemen. I'm, 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 <laughs> you play a Stormby uh, tomorrow, and it's... Uh, oh, God, we're going to get Stormby in here, haven't we? Have you had any uh, input into... I know you've been trying many instruments. Input into the design of this? I used the same soprano for 25 years, and it was an old Besson, and it was a bashed-up old thing. It was actually the prototype of a, a soprano that they designed uh, more like an E-flat like an E-flat trumpet design I helped them design it there was a few soprano players went and gave them a hand with it uh, in the 1990 I think I got a hold of it which was the year before Desford I, I, actually the first time I played it in a contest was the national championships with Desford in 91 on energy mm. when they won the fourth one in a row um, so that instrument's got a real history. It's, it's up in my music shed, or up in Rachel's music shed, sorry. I shouldn't say it's my music shed, it's Rachel's music shed. <laughs> She's got a music studio, surely. <laughs> uh, it's just... It's well, oh, yeah, it's music studio, yes. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's a shed. I, I, I call it the torture chamber. It's where you go to torture yourself. But uh, I'd had this instrument, and it was just getting on. And I'd spoken to Bess, and about doing something new and they weren't prepared to because they just brought out a new design of soprano that Bert Van Tienen had helped them with. Now I didn't get on with that soprano, it just, it just didn't suit me. I needed something bigger, a bigger sort of heavier instrument. So I was on the lookout and I just happened to get talking to the main dealer for Stormvy in, in, in the UK, uh, Donald Owen, who's now become a great friend, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some French guy had designed, or had helped them design the soprano. And he said, can you take one and have it and try it out and see what you think? We'll get your feedback. So I, I took it, hated it. And he said, bear with me. And so the soprano went back and another one appeared. And then it, it, it was a process then of... Um, these sopranos arriving over from Valencia, no, that's not quite right still. And then we enlarged the bell. We changed the bell mixture. So we went from a kind of ordinary brass bell to gold brass. And then we now we're on copper and the copper seems to work for me, although they offer gold brass as well. But they, they were very proactive. And so they've been absolutely brilliant for me, Stormy. They've been, uh, you know, I mean, they even built, built me a four valve soprano. You know, which yeah, is nice. which is a bit of a monster, you know. So this Dan Price has written a, a concerto for me, and uh, we're going to try and record it for four valve soprano. Try and record it after at some point after the summer break. Yeah. But, it's, but like I said, that's my summer ruined because I've got nearly a month, and I've got to get. Well, I mean, it, it, there's very few pieces I've, I've ever looked at in my life and it's actually made me feel ill just the knowledge that it, I'm about to go through a whole different kind of pain in the process of getting this ready 
But, you know, you've got to be positive about it. There's nothing on there that I can't play. It's just trying to play it all. I mean, the first movement's nearly 10 minutes. Mm. That's just the first movement. And then the second movement, well, people will hear it when it comes out. It's up to them to make their own mind up about it. But, um, but so aside from all that, we've got uh, all the Corey stuff to do. And uh, the four-valve soprano, though, I'm toying with it at the moment. I've, I'm thinking... If I heavily practice it over the break, I may use it at the open just to cause a bit of trouble. But is it allowed? Is it f- oh, it's allowed. A saga all the years. It's been given the go ahead. Yeah, it's definitely. I mean, it, it, it's you know, it's allowed. But we shall see. Well, it's been really interesting. I'm looking at the clock because band practice isn't that far ahead, and you need your warm up as well. Uh, there's a couple of questions we always have to ask our yes, guests um, toward the end of the conversation. First is a time machine question. If you could actually then take yourself right back to the start of your playing career, with the benefit of hindsight, what sort of bits of advice would you have given yourself back then? What would have changed that I did back then? I don't then? know. What sort of a, yeah, either change or uh, advice you'd give to yourself? I would tell myself about the you know how to practice properly. Take me into my 40s to mm-hmm. really understand how you go about practicing practicing things properly mm. and doing it constructively and i would also tell myself that you know it's all about sound all about sound if you haven't got a sound that people want to hear you may as well forget it yeah, it's yeah. all about sound so playing wise where do you see yourself in, in 10 years from now retired and <laughs> living on past glory what no not at all no i i, I really don't know if my chops hold out, because you never know on my instrument. I remember having a conversation with, with Gwen, Gwen Thomas, Corey's old soprano player, who, you know, come I see every rehearsal. And he just said that he woke up one day, started to play, and thought, no, that's it. And so, you know, I'm a firm believer that every dog has its day. There'll, there'll come a time where I'm not able to do it, and then some other poor unfortunate's going to have to do it after me. <laughs> But I mean, it sounds like in your career you've picked up, for example, you know how to practice properly. Now, that brings me on to that final bit, really, to say if anybody out there is obviously wanting to, you know, pick your brains either by Skype or, or other means or just getting in touch with you, uh, how can they do that? Yeah, well, you can. There's a couple of ways. Obviously, you could message me on Facebook. I'm very obvious. I'm very sort of. You can find me there quite easily. Or if you want to email me, you can email me at thecoreysop at iCloud.com. And that's all small, lowercase. So it's thecoreysop at iCloud.com. Send me an email and we can organise to to do it. All you really need for it is some enthusiasm, a computer that's got a a camera on it, and uh, we can go for it. I've not had any failures with it yet in the sense that everyone seems to be seems to find it just like a normal lesson i think that with technology it's it's only going to get easier and easier to do to do that kind of thing and so it's not a barrier that just because i live in the middle of nowhere in the west of wales that if you if you live in germany or you live in belgium or you live in france or you live in england even or you live in another part of Wales that you can't have a, a consultation or a lesson or, you, you know, ask me whatever you want. or And uh, I, my, my rates are, I, I try to not be too severe with how much I charge. So. <laughs> well, 
to be discussed. To be discussed, yes. Well, see, it's uh, time shortly to through the other room. The band already arriving. I think one or two have already arrived here. So, rehearsal tonight. It's actually with Owen Admiral Hughes tonight, isn't it? We've got this Welsh Proms in St David's Hall at the weekend. Yes, and we've got uh, every band number's like a finisher. Yes, it is. <laughs> so it's like, if you can imagine, you know, if you're playing a band, you can imagine that you, the end of the second half, you do this big finisher, don't you? Everyone mm. knows this big finisher. Well, if you can imagine doing five or six of those throughout a concert. I think Valhalla, in the middle of one of the halves, is it? Yeah. Yeah, we've got Valhalla. Crown Imperial. Yeah, Crown. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a real smash. But uh, it, it's always good fun, the Welsh proms, and it, it's always a pleasure uh, to play at St David's Hall. It's a, a fantastic hall in Cardiff, one of the best acoustics around. There's always a good audience there. I mean, a prom concert, and then, but it's always the last thing we do before the summer, so you can you can give it a bit extra in the knowledge that you know I can put it in the cupboard for a couple of days yeah. afterwards if I'm hurting a bit. But uh, no, it's it should be a good gig on Friday night. Great, look forward to that as well. Steve Stewart, thank you very much indeed for spending time on uh, Nervine Grass. Thank you very much, Nigel. No problem. If you wish to contact Steve to discuss any issues or book him up for some online tutorials, the contact details will be available on the podcast page on the nezionbrass.com website. If you're a player, conductor, composer or run a brass band-related business and would like to appear on the podcast, please contact me via the Nezion Brass About page where there is an email link. If you'd like to listen to the podcast backlist, you can find it at nezionbrass.com forward slash podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this episode with Steve Stewart. Catch you on the next podcast. <laughs>